Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 153 with Xiang Yim. Xiang is an incredible playwright who I met in Seattle and has since gone on to do wonderful things. Her scripts are so unique and compelling. And if you don't know her, I'm really excited to introduce you to her. We talk about theater. We also talk about advocacy and fatness, which is a topic that I don't see talked enough uh, about in the theater industry. So I hope you enjoy and I hope you maybe learn something from it. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 153 with Xiang Yim. So today on the podcast, we have the amazing, the prolific playwright, Xiang Yim, coming back after a seven-year break to the Theatrical Mustang podcast. Welcome! Thank you! Thank you, Wazik! So good to see you after all these years. <laughs> I know, I've just loved so much seeing your star as a playwright rise to a national level so we're going to work with kind of one of the most recent things so tell me about this play jar of fat this award-winning play uh give me the synopsis and uh tell me talk me through where the idea came from and what the production uh development process has been so far awesome yeah jar of fat is a play that i started writing my first year of grad school and uh, my professor at the time, Lisa Dumore, was very into us sort of just tapping into whatever our, how do you say, like our obsessions, our dreams, our nightmares, sort of just kind of going wild. Um, and Brown is, I feel like, the the Brown University Playwriting Program is very into like experimental work. And so this was my way of trying to like engage in that, but like in a sub, in a topic that I've been sort of obsessed with, which is about fat phobia <laughs> and specifically putting it into an Asian American or Korean American context. Uh, I guess, how far should I back up? I'm kind of rambling, but. Um, <laughs> I totally think first thought, best thought is okay. always the right answer for this. I guess like back in Seattle and just being involved in some activism with other like Korean Americans, we went to, I don't know if you've heard of AMP, activists mobilizing for power was through Western State Center. Very cool. Yeah. And I took this uh, fat activism class, like, I don't even know, like 10 plus years ago uh, with this activist and writer, Leslie Kinzel, who happened, I ran into in, in Providence, like a couple of years ago, but her workshop changed my life. She really was like one of the first people talking about how the BMI is trash you can't tell someone's health by their size or how they look. And just like how fat people face oppression just by the basis of how they look or perceived health. And, you know, how fatness is always deemed as like, you know, costing taxpayers money. And it's it's a drain on this. Just always treating people like they're burdens to society. And she really like fought against that. And it like opened my eyes. And after that, I was just so hungry to learn more about it. Uh, growing up as a chubby person, <laughs> like constantly, it was like con concern trolling from my family. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just want you to be healthy. I just want you to be healthy. And that training really opened my eyes to that. It's actually false to assume that about someone's health. And then on top of that, another thing that I really like is like, your health is nobody else's business, right? But yet it is framed as if it's everybody's business, because you can see it with your eyes, you know, um, for, fo for folks who have vision. Um, and so I got really hungry for it. And then I just started using Instagram as sort of a way to inoculate myself against like this onslaught of fat phobia that's just coming towards me in both cultures, like American culture and Korean culture. And then feeling like I found some people that I really like continue to follow and learn from, but really craving a conversation that was more culturally specific mm. to Koreans. And, uh, 
you know, <laughs> saying fat phobic things is not like that shocking in a Korean family. A lot of times it's just kind of like, oh, your hair is black, you know? So it, it's done in this very specific, intense way, at least in my experience. And then talking with other people who've been involved, I've collaborated with, they've also shared that they've uh, also experienced this, but it's just constant. And then it's also tied to, you know, how people, it's kind of entangled with how people show love again, with like concern and quote unquote, wanting the best for your kid or your family member is to like sort of fetch <laughs> lack of a better way of saying it. And so I wanted to write this play in grad school that explored that, that feeling of like people dangling a carrot in front of you to say, if you could only get to be this size, or if, if only this, you'll be so beautiful. And it seems like dot, dot, dot is your life will be perfect. But I feel like the, the finish line was always constantly moving. One thing that I was told and as a kid often was like, oh, if you just lost weight, you're tall and you have long legs. So if you just got skinny, you could be Miss Korea. <laughs> that was like the ultimate, you know, as if that was like the main thing to aspire to is to become Miss Korea. And I'm like, I don't even want that. I just want you to leave me alone. Like, I just want to like watch weird movies and read weird books and try to make little videos. Like, I don't want to be Miss Korea. But yet this is what people keep telling you that you should want or something. And so I wanted to write a story or a play about this. And I often kind of lean towards comedy because I don't know why I just like comedy and it's a bummer subject. So I was like, how do I write a comedic play about this bummer subject of fat phobia? And so basically the premise is it's set in a sort of surreal world. And there's these two Korean twins. And uh, in this world, uh, each family is buried together in a specific size grave. And these girls are considered too fat. So they are not small enough to fit in the grave so everybody could be together, the mother, the father, the two girls, and their grandmother who's in an urn. And, it's our, and I wanted to explore class, you know, so the bigger the grave, the richer you are. So you don't have to worry about size, but this family is sort of like cash strapped. And even the grandmother doesn't have like a fancy grave. She just isn't an urn. And so I just wanted to kind of explore like, you know, this concern about beauty and thinness is, I think, sort of wrapped up in fear of death. Because if you're always young and beautiful, that means like you're sort of trying to attain immortality to try to erase any effects of mortality and death. And so, yeah, I just feel like it's impossible. <laughs> to meet these standards I was just like what's a premise where it's like impossible and then I wove in some fairy tales uh, I found a really great like Italian fairy tale about these two sisters they both like trick a hot prince and but in the morning he finds out uh, oh, oh yeah sorry let me back up it's about these two twin sisters or just sisters and they're both considered really old and ugly and then they trick this prince and one of them gets with the prince, I guess, and in the morning finds out that she's actually not beautiful. And uh, he flings her out the window. It's extremely violent. <laughs> I got out of this tower after like fairy tale lovemaking. And then she falls into these trees and these fairies come out of nowhere and like turn her really beautiful. And she lands on the ground. And then the other sister is left ugly. They were both ugly together, but one is like, really beautiful one is not considered beautiful and so she's just like how'd you get all hot and the pretty sister's like oh I just she just lies and says I cut off all my skin and underneath was this is me this is the real me you know which I feel like it's often the weight loss like advertising be the real you you inside um and so that other sister cuts off her skin but instead of becoming beautiful she dies so extremely <laughs> fairy tale. And in the version that I read, it was the Carmen Maria Machado version, gorgeous fairy tale for folks should read it. it the, the sister be who becomes beautiful becomes immortal and is just like lives forever in this like beautiful, conventionally attractive body, but outlives anybody that she has ever known. It's just kind of, Kind of like, I guess, Arwen and Lord of the... Is that her name? The elf? I think so, yeah. <laughs> chat, right? 
or I thought it was Liv Tyler. Anyway, right. You're right. I don't know that much about Lord of the Rings. I mean, I've just seen it, you know, it's on, if it's on, I'll watch it. Um, but anyways, I was just struck by that of like, also people who are considered beautiful, like how is it, how are they commodified and how are people trying to exploit them or, you know, so just like the push and pull, the yuckiness and also, you know, my own conflicting feelings about insecurities about the way I look and part of me is like, no, fuck that shit. Fuck beauty standards. Fuck fat phobia. And then other times like the deep ingrained Ugh. shit that I've been swallowing my whole life. Like I, it's a constant battle. And I also like fashion. I like, you know, as artists, we like to look at novel, new, beautiful things, you know? So it's like that inner war that I have. And maybe it doesn't have to be a war, but at the time it felt like a war, I guess, when I was writing it. So the long, like, vomit, word vomit <laughs> sort of influences. I'm a big fan of a non-linear answer, to be fair, because I ask a lot of non-linear questions. <laughs> Um, but I appreciate you sharing that. And I just feel really like moved right now. Are you open to, I would like to share some of the microaggressions that micro and some macro that I've experienced as a fat actor and just a body moving through the world. And then I think the other side of that is maybe if we could list some of the, some more of the folks that like we look to, you're one of the folks that I look to, as I said, before we started recording, I love some of the things that you post on your Instagram. And I think one of the things, so maybe let's start with a positive first. So I was saying that like Lindy West was one of my educators in terms of sort of unlearning. And I remember her saying that the way that she approached sort of unpacking that self-hatred was literally looking at fat bodies until she was able to look at them without judgment. Right. And that's that's a whole friggin' mood. Um, I think about Jess Baker. I think about Tess Holiday. I think about the book, The Body is Not an Apology. And these are things that you have to work a little bit to find because the overwhelming narrative is, you know, fat is bad, fat is unhealthy, just sort of repeating and yes, ending some of the things that you said before. And people are able to couch fat phobic remarks in that, genuine quote-unquote concern for someone I get a permission to be violent towards you in my language because I feel like I can't and there's not really someone that's gonna step in and it's just so frustrating so I'm just gonna get I mean and I feel these are stories that I don't tell publicly these are stories that like fat people whisper to one another and are in commiseration with and so I think about I think about the costumer for a period piece who she was trying to dictate that not only I needed to go on a diet to have a more period appropriate frame oh was in an effing corset, but she wanted to go so far as to dictate what I would eat. Oh my like, god. She wanted to put me not only say lose weight, but put me on a diet. And so I feel like it's a story all too familiar for fat actors and especially those assigned female at birth i am not the only one who tells the story of going to the director and saying how much money do i have to costume myself oh. right because there are so many i think it's getting better but there are many costumers who are like i have this vision for this costume for this role and oh my gosh a fat actor comes in and that goes against my assumption of what this character should look like. And I think there's been many roles too, where sometimes I've fallen into a romantic role, but it's only because a skinny person quit. And then people are like, well, I guess Woodsick can act. And I guess, you know, there's sort of that vibe though, of it might be a stretch for them to be Meg in Crimes of the Heart, for them to be in doing metamorphoses, Mary Zimmerman's Metamorphoses, I played, oh, Psyche, Eros and Psyche and that. And it's like f people totally forget that like fat people are loved all over the world and we get married and I don't know, just like don't, don't count us out. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've even been at a coffee shop 
and had I once was at a coffee shop and I had a woman who I think was perhaps unhoused and experiencing some sort of mental health challenge, but she was pounding on the window of this coffee house, pointing at me and screaming, you're fat, you need to go to the gym. And nobody did anything. And so like, I just had to sit there and take it until this person walked away. And I'm just really, uh, in a lot of these interviews, I talk to folks who, I talk to gender expansive talent and non-binary actors and trans actors. And there's this thing, and I'm really, you're really helping me connect this thread right now of, I think fat actors the same way there's a parallel to trans actors where if we addressed every microaggression in our lives mm-hmm. that came up if we were if we didn't just let it roll off our back well we don't let it roll off our back right but if we just didn't ignore or diffuse if we said hey that's not cool or you really need to educate yourself uh we would be exhausted and i oh. I, I wish that there was a way that we can quantify that as active acting experience like i don't have you know that's an mfa in and of itself moving through the world with whatever microaggressions you're experiencing and and it really sucks sometimes when it's from the other and other side of the casting table and so that's my rambling nonlinear answer do you want to shout out any folks that you found a lot of you know solace and education from and then also any kind of like crappy experiences you want to just share because i also think that folks don't know how prolific this is still even in 2023 well thank you so much for sharing your experience like uh horrified at like what you've gone through and i can also you know relate and empathize in many of the (laughs) you're talking about Uh, that feeling of isolation of when this happens i i deeply relate to that i think right now i'm in a bubble where i'm surrounded by people who don't do that and also maybe because of covid and the pandemic i haven't been around strangers as much but it really brought back memories some just deep core memories of people shaming me or like commenting on my body and then feeling utterly alone even with friends around who are thin that just didn't say anything, maybe because they felt awkward, not because they were trying to be cruel, but also what I appreciate about the current like discourse because of the activists, the fat activists that have been uh, working so hard is that now you can just say fat, you know, it's not like, it doesn't have to be this negative, like you're fat, like, yeah, I'm fat. Like I have hair, you know, or I have eyebrows. But before, I think even just 10 years ago, I think people were like, afraid to say anything because they didn't want to call attention to 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 me being fat you know <laughs> so then they just didn't say anything and and it's not again like I don't think it was from a place of like abandonment but just but yeah anyways just to say I relate deeply with that feeling of feeling alone <laughs> when often when I was like the biggest person in the room and something like that happened uh as far as like People, oh yeah, Lindy West, my gosh, that book Shrill, I laughed so hard about something that's so painful. She made it so funny. I think she's amazing. And also her fashion sense. I would also look yes. at her Instagram and try to figure out where she got her clothes and I would try to get <laughs> her dresses. Oh my gosh, her style is just incredible. Um, who else? Oh, I, I love uh Ijeoma Lowell too. Uh also listen to maintenance phase it's become like gospel to me have you heard of maintenance phase no oh my gosh you have to listen to maintenance phase it's incredible they kind of go through different diet trends past and present and then they debunk the fuck out of it and it is hilarious hilarious so it's like they, you know, even like analyze how data has been used to promote a certain diet and then just pointing at how ridiculous it is, uh, but in such a funny and sharp way. And it's by uh, Michael Hobbs and Audrey Go- Aubrey Gordon. And I think she has a documentary com- coming out, Your Fat Friend. Those two folks. I also, I'm going to butcher the uh, name, but on Instagram, it's Nalgona Positive. I also follow them. They talk a lot about eating disorders and fat phobia. I also love Jessica Starr. 
on Instagram, who's a poet. Who else? There's so many. Oh, I love the Instagram account, Fat Art History. Uh, like when you were talking about the uh, costume design for a period piece and just, you know, in movies, oftentimes fat people are erased or they're just used as like butts of jokes or whatever. But the, this account really shows like historical photographs and paintings of fat people. And I really love seeing that because, you know, I love vintage shit, too, you know. <laughs> uh yeah, those are the few folks that I could think of at the top of my head. I still follow Leslie Kinzel, who's uh, amazing as well, who I first, you know, took that training with. Um, yeah, and if I think of more, I'll shout them out. Oh, the fat sex therapist. Yes. Oh, yeah, they're really cool. Yeah. I just wanted to yes and this. It's a, fun, it's a funny thing, right? Because back in the day, I mean, fashion and not only do fashions come back, circuit in a circuitous kind of uh full circle way but thinking about at one point in time being fat was a sign of you had money like you had the money to have the food to be fat and it's fascinating to me now it's like I feel those who are privileged have the money you have the money to be thin you have the money to hire the personal trainer and the um nutritionist and I just shout out perhaps oddly to Paul Rudd, but he's one of the only guys who I've seen who's like, I'm miserable when I'm, when I'm getting in shape for Ant-Man, I'm miserable. Like I have to, it's a lot of, it's a lot of really bland chicken that I have to eat at certain times. And, and, um, I mean, I can say that with a little bit of humor, but I also think about, I get really mad about Carrie Fisher and, how they brought her back to the Star Wars franchise, but it was sort of with the mandate that she had to lose a certain amount of weight to be quote unquote camera ready because, you know, misogyny and fat phobia and the fact that we just have all these dudes who remember her or whoever is attracted to Carrie Fisher in a bronze bikini. Uh, She's like 19 or something. (laughs) Right, and we're like chasing after that and losing that weight so quickly was one of the contributing factors to her death and it's like we're was it worth it like to me it absolutely was not worth it for her to lose however many pounds she used to be general leia like that's ridiculous i i just want to empower folks who are listening to this you probably have an implicit bias against fat people just because you are getting so much messaging without even knowing that you're consuming the messaging that being fat is intrinsically inherently bad. And it's just point blank, not true. That can not be your measure of people. And gosh, like just have a freaking conversation with us. Right. Like I feel, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like sometimes I feel like talented with an asterisk, right? Like there are times when my mind wanders where it's like, man, if I were size you know, I don't even think about like size four or whatever. I'm like, if I were size 12 again, right? Oh, like, I yes. just, I feel like I would be taken a lot more seriously because I, I think another thing that folks don't know is that in most states, I believe it's still legal to discriminate against someone for being fat. Like there's, you know, you see all those protections in an HR notice, like we don't discriminate on the basis of gender sexuality race ethnicity disability veteran status and body size is almost never included in those things and so the fact that i don't know that's appalling to me and i guess since i'm always thinking about the intersection of transness too there's a a case that was recently kind of a landmark case where there are states and providers where like if if someone who's assigned female at birth wants top surgery there are certain in some places there are certain restrictions on well you cannot get top surgery until you lose x amount of weight until you uh, are this and there's not really a lot of truth behind that why like why and so there was a case that was recently decided i think it was in the pacific northwest where it's like no like no, if this person needs gender affirming care, if they're in one of the few states that still provide it right now in this 
you know, cultural hellscape, you know, weight cannot be one of those things that prevents someone. I want to pivot now when I create, and I don't consider myself a playwright by any means. I consider myself more of a director and producer, but sometimes I have like done a lot of times the work that I create is sort of like a mixtape docu play kind of, you know, like that's what my MFA thesis was. And I found because I was exploring trans themes, it was hard to get the kind of helpful feedback that other people were getting. And I'm just wondering if you're willing to speak in terms about, you know, whether it's peers or someone, whoever is giving you feedback on a play like Jar of Fat, do you feel like you have to explain certain aspects of fatness and what you are trying to achieve with a certain character? Do you feel like you have to do some of that teaching to like sort of level up their cultural competency in terms of speaking objectively in terms of what makes giving that feedback to you as an artist? Sure. Yeah. I think with Jar Fat, I think, I think I was the only Asian person in the room. And I think, so I think, yeah, I think we just, sometimes in writing rooms, we kind of come in and we're all coming from different places, cultures, what have you. And so I think, um, it, it's been really helpful when I've been in rooms with Asian folks um, and not all who identify as fat, but they understand this sort of kind of cultural bluntness that mm-hmm. our families have, even if we're not all Korean, you know, I've been in a room with just, you know, all Asian folks or all people of color um, and they sort of get it like the, you know, either Asian family or immigrant family intensity of like, this intensity to like survive and if if you just work hard at this one thing of getting beautiful and dead you know like that sort of level of intensity that um I think for folks who aren't maybe around that might not know and then I would have to explain um and and uh you know there's times I question like is this even worth exploring is this even a worthy topic because you know there were some you know early pages where I didn't know if how it was landing because we were all in different cultural spaces. So it was hard to tell if it mattered or not, you know, and then uh, being around other people who've experienced either similar things, that's where I figured out, you know, that it has a place and, and people want to hear about it. And I think it just depends on the room it is. And also, it also helped me to learn that, I don't write plays for everybody. If people like it, great. But there's some plays that I'm really, I was really trying to speak to certain group of folks, either fat folks or like uh, Korean Americans who have gone through this kind of upbringing uh, and not to villainize like the parents in the, in the play necessarily, but to show, and in, in the process of writing it also like understand why they're so hung up on this in sort of a, in a harmful way, but it's out of fear. It's out of like fear and concern, which is not always, uh, the impact is not always great, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Uh, And it's wrapped up in the systems like you've named, you know, it's wrapped up in class and race and fat phobia. Uh, So it's not a simple, you know, one person's bad. If you've said a fat phobic thing, you know, I've totally, I've totally probably have, you know, permitted fat phobia to happen in my life as well. And it's constant unlearning. It's a constant, it's like the learning never ends. <laughs> um, but uh, what was the other part of your question? Oh, getting feed. I mean, Oh, getting feedback. Let's yeah. open it up for feedback, like from audience members too. Cause I, it's an, in, uh, I hate that it's still novel to sort of novel revolutionary to capture these topics artistically, or even have like a frank conversation that, like we're having right now. I'm interested in, 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 in terms of, you know, end product audience feedback, but then also folks who are guiding development and maybe needed an extra hand to sort of understand of things. I think, well, and also what you were talking about as being an actor too, it made me also think too about like even casting this uh, play. It has, it's gone through a workshop production and my first year, I think the Brown Trinity program had like the most Asians it ever had admitted. And it was the same year. So I took all the Asians that I could. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, I think these folks aren't folks that identify as fat, but they're Asian. So, you know, and it was a workshop production and they did an incredible job. I still hear like their voices sometimes when I'm like revisiting the script. But I found like casting is a tricky thing, right? Because I think the industry promotes people to be thin and a certain size and attractability and whatever this narrow fucking frame is. And so it's been really interesting and like a tender experience when I'm working with the director to figure out how to cast this. Like, how do we broach the subject to an actor if they identify as fat or not? You know, not everybody does. And I I kind of personally sort of see it as a political identity too, not just, you know, looks or whatever. And so not everybody identifies as that. So how do you begin that conversation? And and how will they, uh, you know, if we approach an actor for a role uh, who meets, you know, what we might have in our head, how how will they take it? And just, I've been very, like, concerned about, like, I don't want to bring in fat actors and have them be <laughs> treated badly or have a terrible experience. For me, I'd right. rather not have the play happen, because that's not why I wrote the play. I wrote the play <laughs> for the opposite of that. So... I really am like conscious about how the room might be set up and how do we like help center the fat folks in the room if we do have them in the room. Um, but yeah, casting has been a conversation that we're having and I think it has to be done very intentionally. And I, I'm honestly kind of making it up as I go in deep collaboration with whoever the director is. Um, And that's what I always start off with is just creating room. I don't know if I believe in a quote safe space, but at least a space where folks can, you know, have care and to reduce the amount of (laughs) as much as possible is my, is my focus. And also in, and even in terms of like multiracial Asians, right? Like if we invite, a a black and Asian actor to be in a role? How do we adapt the script so that we're not perpetuating anti-black racism? It's, it's something that I'm wondering about. I don't have any solutions, more questions. Um, And then another layer has been like for some folks that have worked on the play or, you know, read about the play, you can't really tell what kind of experiences they've had with fat phobia or eating, eating disorders or, anything like that just by looking at them either, even if they appear, quote, conventionally thin. Um, just the amount of stories that I have been entrusted with me about people's experiences, you really can't tell, you know, like, so that's been another eye-opening thing. And then on top of that, if they're actors, just the industry kind of, you know, just like if you're on film and stuff, the amount of, I don't know, the obsession with being thin and like, quote, perfect, or beautiful, you know, and what does that even mean? And, but those are the realities that people have to face when they're performers. And that's one thing I was always like, even when I took undergrad acting classes, I enjoyed acting, but I never wanted to be seen, and like judged and rejected in that way that was like, for how you looked and stuff. It's like, I got that. I've gotten that my whole life. I don't need this on stage. Um, So it's like that kind of pressure is like really daunting. So yeah, I'm kind of left with more questions and a lot of figuring out that I still have yet to do. So we haven't had a professional production of this play, Jar of Fat, yet. We've had a workshop, student production, and multiple readings, which have been really incredible experiences. So um, if folks are listening to this podcast, hopefully they are leaning in if you want an awesome award-winning play that explores things that are not usually explored, uh, this one needs a full production. So, so get on it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You're it's welcome. Been- I wanted to say, I'm just resonating with so many things that you're saying. I remember we had an audition class, auditioning class, my senior year of undergrad. And I was told that, oh, you're so talented. Nobody's going to know what to do with you until you're 35. And being a neurodivergent human, like I sort of, I believe, you know, this was a professional actor telling me this. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I still, you know, and now at 37, (laughs) I carry with me where 
I don't think that she was basing that on anything other than how much I weighed, you know, and I'm 21, right? I'm 21 and I'm being told at an institution that I'm paying for to learn by someone who is a leader, you know, in my little Midwestern world at that time, who I really looked up to. And that was such, it was such a letdown, but going off of what you're saying in terms of, that's a question I have too, in terms of when you're looking specifically for fat actors, like I, I know that there are affinity groups for like, I'm a part of an affinity group for gender expansive theater artists. And that's just a question I have. Like, is there, how does one go about it? How does one go about it? And y'all, if you're listening, you know, sound off, sound off in the comments, send us an email. Cause we are two very smart, well-connected humans. And this is a, it's a question we honestly are having and discovering and talking about right now. Um, are you, it sort of, this opens it up to me a little bit because you, you have taught at the undergraduate level, you're going to teach again. How does all, how do all the things that we've talked about up to this point, how does that inform your pedagogy in terms of even if there's not a fat student in the room, do you try to make space for those conversations and have that be an awareness that the students are holding? Yeah, I don't know if I specifically think about it in terms of teaching that's specifically fat phobia, but I try to create some kind of, or not create, I have borrowed community agreements that are, you know, I've learned through, you know, activist trainings and so forth, and constantly also trying to take other trainings to online whenever I can to see what other instructors are doing and to try to create space for folks to have conversations as they arise because you just don't know what a student's going to bring in. And uh, I think some learning moments have been when, you know, someone might bring in something that, you know, could be harmful or uh, offensive or whatnot. And how do we approach it? But like guided by the writing you know, and so trying to frame it as like an audience might react X, Y, Z. Is that your intention or, or do you want to talk about that? And also trying to, I don't know how well it's been going, but just trying to institute like either triggers in a document and also trying to practice consent. If a student doesn't want to read uh, a script out loud that they can bow out and just having all these ways that people can express what their boundaries are. And I try to be as available as I can to my students. Um, but I also have a stack of books I need to read. I need to read um, Craft in the Real World. <laughs> That's one of them. Anti-Racist cre- uh, Writing Classroom, I think it's called. And there was another book as well. It's like a trilogy of books that I want to read. Um, but yeah, trying to meld my old activist training with writing. And then also my peers, just how my peers handle in grad school, just writing about really difficult, potentially triggering things, but doing it in a way uh, that's, you know, so beautiful and artful, and also the the care in which they give feedback to each other. So I really learned a lot from my fellow playwrights as well. Uh, but yeah, and then I think, slow, you know, maybe like, in other ways, like the plays that I select to read <laughs> is a way to like, sort of keep those in mind. Um, I haven't found another play about fat phobia that isn't, you know, well, the one play. <laughs> well, no, let's let's name it. Like I think about, I think about, I'm still really, really mad about the whale. Huh? I like Brendan Fraser a lot. Yes. And that was originally a play and it makes me real, real mad. And then I think about like, obviously vomit, but like Fat Pig by Neil Laboot. Oh, is, I haven't read that one. Yeah, I mean, like, it has a leading role for a fat actress, and, you know, one of her thin co-workers falls in, in love with her, and to make a very convoluted and not great plot, in my subjective opinion, um, you know, to condense it, at, by the end, she's, you know, he's become embarrassed to be seen with her, or he, I think he's a four-person play, and the other folks are co-workers, and that just perception just gets to him too much. And by the end, she's, as I remember, is literally begging, like, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll get surgery. I'll lose all this. You know, I just, she doesn't want to lose this person. And. Oh my God. And it's called fat pig. 
Yeah. So fun. Um, but I'm just trying to even, yeah, I'm coming up short too, in terms of like, this would be a great play. Like if I, if I had a student in my class, I mean, I think the way that I would go about it is stuff like, I think the only center does a really great job of just casting and, and in their, their beauty and the beast, they had, you know, a fat black non-binary human playing bell and an actor playing the beast who has, um, I think one of his legs is amputated at, at the knee. And so like the power in just that and not saying anything about it. So this is a quote unquote canonical work. Mm -hmm. And just by putting, sometimes just by putting fat bodies on stage and especially in those roles where their love interests, I think this happens. I just was having a conversation yesterday about, you know, I think a lot in Shakespeare folks try to, Oh, I want to be, I want to be diverse in my casting. Yay. I want to pat myself on the back. Like, and just feeling very good. Like we have this amazing trans actor playing Ariel, you know, like playing the clown, playing a mystical creature. And I'm going to pat myself on the back about it. And it's like, cool. Like, um, you know, like what about fat Prospero? What about fat Miranda? What about, I don't know. It's just, I, I think it goes back to that Lindy West thing of, we have to have these examples. I think my friend Madison Scott, she's, I forget where she's, she's working. She was, she just directed a, a production of Pride and Prejudice where the, Elizabeth Bennett was a, a, a fat actress and not only that, but then also having the poster representation be an accurate depiction of her size like that. I saw that picture on Instagram and I cried because like we don't get to, we don't get to see this and i oh. i'm going again in a in a ranty way but this is something i don't we don't talk about this enough we just like there's i think a lot of things that remain unsaid about casting specifically and i really welcome folks to be in conversation with us and you know in the comments or by email about like I'd love to hear uplifting experiences. I want to hear about those productions. I want to hear about those plays that like do a great job and, and casting that folks have seen that made you lean in and made you go like, yeah, yeah. Like that's a cool thing. And I think sometimes that can reveal things about a character or, or relationships in, in a play that one has seen many times. Um, I just want folks, I want folks to be, bold in their casting decisions and not go just with what has come before traditionally yeah, and and then I'm also curious like in the rooms too like how do you provide care to the people yeah. that are you know the quote first playing xyz like right. whether it's by gender identity or body size or what have you like how do you create that room of care so that you are like you know, reducing harm because I find what's frustrating in a lot of like diversity inclusion conversation. It's just let's just shoehorn people in without right. thinking about what the impact is and and how it might be different. And what what do we need to pivot and how do we need to think differently? It's just it's. I think right now the conversation, at least as far as I've seen, it's just trying to stick people in. <laughs> but like, what are we changing? You know, what are we doing differently? Um, I'm kind of interested in that and yeah, I don't know. It's an ongoing and it's going to change. It's going to keep changing. Right. So we hope, I mean, I think I am heartened. I am. I just think like, and I consider you among this cohort. I think there's this really juicy, empowered, talented cohort of like folks who are, are, are positioning themselves to be the next generation of artistic leaders. And I'm just so excited you are part of that. You are absolutely part of that. Thank you. Oh my gosh. And I just, I, I, yeah, I, I hope, I hope a million people listen to this podcast. It would make me very, very happy. Um, are you cool if we talk about some of your other plays now? Sure. I obviously we could talk for, we could create our own separate podcast. That's just like talking fat stuff in theater and and oh my gosh just pitching to you right now and maybe we do i don't know stay tuned um, theater i love that i love that as a title too 
All right, we're gonna we're gonna go offline and 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 develop that idea. All right, so tell us about your play, Golf Girl. Where did that come from? Yes, Golf Girl was my thesis play in grad school, and uh, my professor Julie Jarko, she had us thinking about the voice and had us read this um, text called "The Grain of the Voice" and thinking about voice, not just like what are people saying, what do they mean, but like how. What is like the essence of a voice? What makes the voice? Like what are the muscles and mucus that makes the voice? So it was originally an audio play. And I really had that in the back of my mind as a framework of thinking about the voice and using language almost like, I don't know how to explain it, but like sort of almost like music in a way and just thinking about rhythm Um, And then layered on top of that is like research about Korea now, South Korea now, and how there's this huge explosion of everybody being interested in Korea. I was just talking to someone else about like being Korean in the 90s, where a lot of people didn't even know where Korea was. It was all about Japan, Japan, Japan. And now there's like all this obsession with Korean culture. Uh, So I was kind of like reaching back to the 90s a little bit too, because as a kid, my dad loved golf. And that was also another obsessive question of what started the play is like, why are Korean people so obsessed with golf, this Scottish sport? <laughs> just My dad would send me his like sweat stained polos and his old like, you know, golfing sweaters and hats and stuff. And I just was like, I don't want this. Why are you sending this to me? But he was just, he loved golf. And uh, I was visiting him, I think, over the summer. And um, this Korean golfer, Park City, won like the 1998 LPGA uh, championship. It was like the first time a Korean woman had won everything. And that just opened all the doors for all these like young Korean golfers. And now there's so many Korean golfers that are at like, you know, very highly ranked and winning. And so I kind of wanted to do a play about that. And maybe like subconsciously is sort of about my dad, not directly, but just because I did some research on Paxetti, that one player who kicked off the golf craze for uh, women. And her father was extremely involved in her golf training, like Mm. some intense training that I heard. And also a lot of like sports documentaries I watched too, where like the dads were like fit loomed large in their, you know, children's sports careers, like, um, you know, Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, for example, their dads were like huge oh, in their lives. The Williams sisters yeah. too. And the Williams sisters. I haven't watched that movie yet. Uh, King Richard, but I want to watch that too. I love sports document or sports documentaries and sports movies, but I don't really like watching sports because <laughs> like sports movies, they just kind of like get to the action and the thrills. Um, And you don't have to really understand all the logistics. Anyways, I read some interesting stories about Park City and her dad. And like, he really tried to like, toughen up her, her iron will. And they would, she would have her practice golfing in cemeteries at midnight. You know, as a kid and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So that her focus would just be golf. And so I became obsessed with this idea of like, you know, sacrifice and ritual and sort of like the automization of excellence. And that's sort of what the play is about. Um, Having such a singular focus to be the best. Uh, Because I didn't really ever have that. I was always kind of like wandering, like, who am I? What do I want to do? What can I be good at? So I was drawn to a character that was so unlike me, where they were just trained from such a young age to be this one excellent thing. And then thinking about what does that do to you and what else does that, how do you decide to do anything else after something like that? You know, cause it's not something you can necessarily do forever, right? You can't be the best forever and you know, there's golf injuries and what have you. So anyways, I was sort of grappling with those kind of issues alongside with thinking about rhythm and voice. And I try to make a, play but it's not really about golf i have it in my front runner <laughs> this is not a realistic play about golf um there's also a brain-eating amoeba in the play also love another obsession <laughs> like 
an obsession uh, for my days in Seattle. I think I read an article where somebody was doing neti pot <laughs> and like a brain eating am- amoeba got into someone. And then I threw up my my like $16 like ceramic neti pot. <laughs> it was like when everybody was doing neti pot, you know? Right, right. Anyways, that that story stuck in my head. So I thought like, what if she goes into the water and a brain eating amoeba gets in her head and it's kind of thematically linked to you know what if like the amoeba makes her just be about all golf her brain becomes golf brain that's why she's golf curl um yeah so that's sort of what the play is about (laughs) is a young woman trying to figure out what to do that's fascinating i relate i relate to a lot i'm an athletic human i am not but i i relate to a lot of that in, especially like, are you doing something for yourself or are mm-hmm. you doing some, when you get into adulthood, right. And that whole, I remember being in my twenties and learning that word individual individuation where like mm. the process psychologically of, Oh, I am, I am my, I'm an adult in the world and I can think differently about my parents' expectations of me because I'm an adult in the world. And what, what does that mean and how those things those things shift. And I don't, I remember being a kid and the vibe of like, oh, you got an A minus. Oh, you got a B plus. Like, well, that must have been some, not that anyone said this to me, but it was never like, great job, A minus, B plus. <laughs> like, you know, it's an interesting thing too, because I think sometimes the parents, at least in my case, was it's a fine, there's some sort of a financial motivation behind it. Cause I think in their case, there was some nervousness about being able to pay for college. And so mm. it was keep that G, you know, keep that GPA up because, and I feel sometimes there is a parallel with athletes in that. Yeah. In that. 100%. And, and I was also taking a Korean media class and, and looking at, you know, like I was saying right now, Korea is like this shiny, you know, force even in American culture right now. And, but underneath it, there's all these people who are suffering and working like really horrific jobs and long hours to try to sustain whatever global capitalism is like demanding of them. And so there's like, I learned this phrase in this media class I took of it's uh, where people call Korea hell Choson, like from the Choson dynasty, but calling it hell because, you know, people are underpaid, working long hours and like, you know, it's just people are suffering. But on the exterior, it's just K-pop and K-beauty and all the glamour, you know, but underneath like everyday people, a lot of people are like trying trying to make a living and survive like the hells of global capitalism. So there's, that sort of like was also in my mind as I was writing it of like, why do you need to be the best? And why is there no room and the scarcity to like be the best? It's like this urgency that feels like life or death towards success, you know? And so, yeah. Oof, that had a big, <sighs> that was a big feel. <laughs> that was a big feel. Yeah, I think, you know, I know we're all nauseous about this, the, you know, the pandemic pivot like that language, mm-hmm. right? but it feels there was a reckoning, at least for a lot of, a lot of artists. You talk about, you talked, you spoke about like, you can't be the best forever. You can't do this forever. And I think there, I mean, a lot of folks that I know who are these really, they, I mean, like they still are vibrant humans and stuff, but they, you know, before the pandemic, they were hopping from this gig to this gig to this gig as an, you know, an actor or a director. And you know, they want to stay in one spot now and they're kind of letting go of the theatrical grind, let's call it. And, you know, where does that leave you? And that's, that's something I've been thinking about as an actor too. Like I haven't acted on a stage in years, but I still want the right to call myself an actor because I poured so much of myself into that. And it's, you know, where do actors go when they retire? I don't know. They they blend into mm-hmm. the population and are uh, wonderful at parties. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I have that fear too as a writer. Like, 
you know, there is that fear of like, when, when will people stop reaching out or, you know, I always have to keep being out there and da, 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 da. And sometimes that makes it difficult to create because you're constantly thinking about getting picked anyways for money, you know? So yeah. How do you take a pause and like (laughs) still feed your like creative life? And then there's like sort of the business side of it. So it's like balancing the two. I don't know. Uh, I'm looking forward to learning more. (laughs) Yeah. Very, very that. And just something that rose to the surface as you were talking just then is I need constant reminders that I have to be gentle with myself. Like being gentle with yourself is not a luxury. And I think that just means being, that just means, I, I think it's cultivating a practice of mindfulness and also really allowing yourself to take care of that little kid before we learned all this, all the stuff that piles on and these structures of power and you know it's maybe taking a page from the artist's way or whatever but I just hope that everyone who's listening to this like find those little yummy gentle things you can do for yourself because you just gotta you gotta you gotta 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 and one delightful I was gonna say this earlier when you're talking about loving sports so it was not watching sports it was sports movies sports documentaries yes Dame Helen Mirren was asked at one of those, I think, Hollywood Reporter roundtable, one of those roundtables that they do to sort of prep folks Love for her. a nomination. And so they asked her what her, what's your favorite movie? What's your, comf- what's your comfort movie? And without any sense of irony, she immediately said, well, it has to be Dodgeball. I love that, <laughs> I love that movie so much. Whenever it's on TV, I am. It is compulsory for me to sit down and watch it. And they're making a dodgeball too, but it could just never be as good as dodgeball one. And you can feel this pause as the interviewer is like processing that. And then they say dodgeball, the Ben Stiller and Vince Vaughn movie, you know, <laughs> Tame Ellen Mirren. And she's like, yes, of course. <laughs> so something to give our listeners a warm a warm fuzzy sparkle today so whenever anyone judges your choices in the media that you consume to soothe yourself know that dame helen mirren's favorite movie to watch when she's in a bad mood dodgeball (laughs) so let's bring it home now for all the folks who have fallen in love with you and want to learn more uh after listening to all your delightful and delightfully profound words on this podcast where can they find you what's happening next i usually put stuff on my website www oh people don't say www anymore right you can <laughs> that's okay I mean, I like it. i'm an elder millennial just I have an elder millennial you are i didn't know that yeah i'm 30 37 yeah so we'll have your website in the episode description, but would you like to share it in whatever format you would like right now? Oh, just just my name and first name and last name. So S-E-A-Y-O-U-N-G-Y-I-M dot com. Beautiful. What are the next adventures coming your way theatrically? As of right now, I don't have anything lined up. I just finished a reading at Mai and I was part of their writer's lab, which was for six months. Uh, oh, the only other thing, I guess, um, not my own work per se, but I'll be teaching at RISD in the fall. So looking forward to that. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And then just working on the old plays that I haven't finished. I need to be working on those. So constant revising. All the things that we're, it's like a garden, right? We're like waiting for stuff. To, we're tending to our gardens, respectively. I love that. I love that that's an, I love that answer because hopefully, I mean, I think it shows that you're being healthy and like taking care of the whole human. And then also I hope that it entices listeners to reach out to you and learn more about these yes. the plays we talked about <laughs> and the plays that we didn't. Anything else you want to say before we part ways? This has been so much fun. Just thank you, Woodzik. I loved chatting with you and I loved reconnecting with you. And it's just, it's been a blast. So thank you so much for having me on and making space for these kinds of conversations. 
Always. It's my favorite thing. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This episode of the podcast was edited by C.J. Higgins and distributed by American Theatre Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.